Hi, I'm Yushuan Su. And I'm Connor Campbell. You're listening to Into the Unknown. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Into the Unknown. It's me, Kishan, alongside Connor. How are you, Con? I'm good, I'm good. I'm looking forward to the guest that we've got on I, today. I am also looking forward to the guest we've got on because today we're joined by, I want to say, we're joined by royalty. <laughs> um, but Con, I'll let you do the honours. All right, so on today's podcast, we have finally got on Dr. and Olympian Elsa Desmond after so many but episodes. Dr. Me... and Olympian. Yes, that's it. Just after so many episodes mentioning, I went to China, I went to the Olympics. We finally brought on the girl that actually took me to China. So usually when I introduce guests, I give a little bit of information about the background, but just from the title already, I'm sure it already gives a lot away. You know, she's a doctor and an Olympian. So I'm going to keep this short and I'll let her do all the talking. So in 2020, Elsa was the face of the Irish Olympic Committee for two main reasons. Number one, she was the first luge athlete ever to compete on the Olympic stage for Ireland. Secondly, she helped found the Irish Luge Federation and cement her place in sporting history whilst juggling a full-time degree in medicine at the prestigious King's College London. So, Elsa, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Right. Let's get straight into the nitty gritty bit. What people want to know is, first of all, what is luge and how did you get into it? <laughs> what is luge? The ultimate question. I um, remember asking you that question. and um... Everyone, I remember Connor asking me that question. I yep. remember everyone asked me that question and some people will be like oh luge and actually not have a clue what it is and they're just that saying, was me that was me pretending yeah. not to be stupid and, ignorant. and then they go away and google it later and then come back once <laughs> they worked it out yeah uh, and some people will just be like i have no idea what this is but well done <laughs> congratulations uh, congratulations um so luge is for anyone that doesn't know it's a winter olympic sport it's one of three sliding sports at the winter games uh, bobsled is probably the most well-known, so out of the film Cool Runnings, uh, that's a bobsled. And then Skeleton, which is um, on the same track as bobsled, going headfirst, downhill, lying on your tummy. And then Us, which is Luge, we are the fastest of the three, we're also the highest risk of the three. Um, and we go feet first, on your back, down the same track as the bobsled, um, a little bit faster than they do. So what sort of speeds do you get up to when you're going down the track? It depends on the track. There's different styles of track, but the fastest tracks you can, from ladies start, probably get up to about 135 kilometers an hour. Which is ridiculous. I mean, that's Jesus. what, about 90, about 80, 90 miles an hour, roughly? 90 something. It's faster than the motorway. I know that. Crikey. That's, that's very fast. And so how, how and why did you decide to kind of get into it? Obviously, we know, but... Just for the listeners, I know I, I love hearing this story because it's just so <laughs> blasé. Like it just obviously compared to obviously where you are now and what you've achieved going back to. Do you ever sort of think back like, God, imagine yeah, if I never. I have photos. I was looking at photos not long ago of my first evolution camp and I was a teenage girl. I went out to Austria. So 
to backtrack, when I first saw Luge, it was the Turin Olympics in 2006, and I saw it on TV. I was on a ski holiday with my my mom. Mm-hmm. I saw it on uh, television, and I thought it looked amazing. I remember watching AJ Rosen, um, who was the British athlete at that Games, and I thought it was just the coolest sport ever. There was no British women. There was no Irish women. And I was like, well, I'll do it then because no one else is. Mm. Um, And unfortunately, I wasn't able to get into it. I was too young to join the British Federation. There was no Irish Federation. And so we just kept contacting people for years and years. And eventually, when I was a teenager, um, about 10 years later, I managed to go out and do a military camp in Austria. Um, And it was just me, this little teenage girl and this full team of military men um, who did look after me, to be fair to them. Um, And I was the fastest one on that week. And sort of from my very first run, I was like, this is this is fantastic. I want to keep doing this. Um, And it all just kind of went from there, really. So just backtrack a little bit because people wouldn't know. um, But because Connor introduced you as an Irish athlete and representative Mm -hmm. of the Irish Federation, but you... You're originally from the UK? So I have an Irish passport because of my family. Um, I'm from an Irish family, but um, I live in the UK. I obviously clearly sound very British. I grew up in the UK. Um, So originally I did slide for GB as a junior and then my first season at senior. And then, I mean, competing for Ireland was something I'd always considered, something we'd always talked about. Um, but then there was a coaching change within the British team. It didn't fit with me. Um, and so we decided to make the move across to represent Ireland. And it's probably one of the best decisions I've ever made for my career. And it was also not really a very easy decision either. Obviously, you uh, people change countries, not, not regularly, but it's quite common to change countries if you have a dual citizenship. But the major difficulty in that was luge wasn't a sport in Ireland. So can you kind of explain like the process that, you know, cause people think, Oh yeah, it was easy. She just switched countries. And actually yeah. you didn't just switch countries at all. No. So I, we'd always, like I said, we'd always considered moving to the Irish team and I put some sort of feelers out to the Irish uh, Skeleton and Bobsled Federation and to Peter Sherrard, who's the CEO of uh, the Irish Olympic Committee. And we're just kind of establishing, is there a federation out there? Is there any legacy? Is there anything we can kind of build on? Um, And then I did my that season where I did the first race of the season. I did the preseason with Team GB and then the first race of the season. And it really was just a moment of I don't belong in this team anymore. This team doesn't fit me. This team is not the right place for me to be. And it really was a decision from one day to the next of I'm, I'm going to move on. Um, And that decision needed to be made quickly because if I was still going to aim for Beijing, it needed to be made three years before the games. So really we didn't have time to sit on that decision and think, Oh, should I stay? Should I go? We just made that decision pretty much on the day. Um, and I left. And that was a really scary decision because, as you said, there was no Irish Luge Federation. So for that season, I didn't I didn't belong to a federation. I wasn't an international athlete. I was training in Canada and North America, just self-funded and on my own and with juniors and and through contacts. But I wasn't part of a national squad. And so we had to found the Irish Luge Federation. So with the support of my family, we became a company in Ireland under um, Company House. We registered as a corporation. Uh, We then had to get recognised by the Irish Olympic Committee and tried to get recognised by Sport Ireland. We then had to get recognised from there by the International Luge Federation and the IOC. 
Um, and then we had to get me recognized as an athlete, which was the easy part um, before I could race. So it was a lot of work. It was um, a steep learning curve because I have no idea about running a company or the things behind it. Setting up a bank account actually became one of the biggest struggles because they thought we were money laundering because they were like, Ireland can't have a loose team. I was just about to say that sounds like the best and most efficient shell company for money, yeah, money laundering. Yeah, it does. And now I so, think they realize that there's almost no money moving through this account and they have nothing to <laughs> They're doing about. a terrible job. Of it. <laughs> I know, exactly. But um, just to, to, yeah. to interject there, because, you know, you talk about there, when you first started the Federation, there was obviously no Federation, nor was there much of a, I suppose, a history or legacy of Luge mm. in Ireland. Set the scene for us um, about what Luge is like in England and for Team GB like do you guys so even for Team GB they are a very small nation in the sport um unlike skeleton and bobsled luge isn't funded really um or their funding is very very small compared to bobsled and skeleton um it's been in the olympics for longer than skeleton um so you'd think it would be more established but actually it's a very small program within gb they had one athlete at these games they currently have no women racing internationally so gb is a very small program still so it wasn't like i was moving from a really high sort of um tech supported program to just being on my own um it it wasn't challenging from that perspective because actually i was moving from a small nation to a non-existent nation um but yeah, no, GB is not a big team, but they had a coach, they had some form of a program, they had a federation. So they had some level of support, which I, I lost, obviously, when I left. Um, but no, they're not a big nation in the sport at all. And they never really have been. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And and just to clarify one thing, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but you, you're happy with the move? Oh, yes. It was the best decision <laughs> for my career, 100%. Awesome. And so you were also doing this, uh, or at least when I met you, um, were you still a junior? I think you were, weren't yes, you? Yes, I was. I was a junior. I was. It was before I started senior races. So yeah, I think it was my last season of junior. Yeah. So you, whilst it, all of this was going on, obviously fast forward a few years, we want to rewind back a little bit now. So you were juggling medical school at the time as well as being a junior athlete. Yeah. First of all, what was that like in terms of your time management? Now, Which is insane, by the way. Just <laughs> um, the thought of that. It, yeah. was, it was more challenging than I think teenage me had anticipated it being. Um, but that's because I was effectively a child and just thought, this is cool, let's do this. Um, but also it was, it was definitely doable despite the fact that it was challenging it just involved a lot of time management I just had to plan ahead doing additional placements outside of normal placement hours and um, arrange to have lectures online which pre-covid was not really a thing so much you'd have to actually attend lectures um, now it's much easier but um, back then it wasn't quite so. Mm. so I had to do lectures online I had to be really strict with myself about doing my studying while I was on the circuit I would have revision cards in the start house I wrote essays in cars between tracks um, on the long drives around Europe um, so I had to be really strict with myself about making sure that I put the time into my studies while I was away um, but also strict about making sure I fitted in the gym time when I was in the country and, and at medical school. Yeah I imagine that's I mean for most people university in and of itself is difficult but 
this might seem like a strange question, but do you feel like the fact that you were, you know, you were studying as well as trying to be a full-time athlete, you were actually able to kind of split your time between the two well, or like, did it give you more purpose to say, actually, if sport doesn't go well, I have this. And if uni doesn't go well, I have this. Um, I mean, I think there is an extent to that of knowing it's not the be all and end all. But also, I don't think I ever kind of considered the idea that it wouldn't go well. I was so sure that I could do both. And I never, like, I never even considered quitting either. And I had a meeting with one of the heads of year in second year. And she said, if you have to choose, which one will you choose? And I said, I won't. Um, It never was an option for me to to fail at either of them, really. Because I knew if I started to perform less well in one, I would just put in the effort that it took to to improve and I know that's probably quite a naive view to have had at the time but that was the view that I had when I was a student that I would just make it so I succeed um but I definitely think I procrastinated less because I had to be efficient yeah um I had 20 minutes to do this piece of work and I had to get it done because otherwise I wouldn't be sliding yeah absolutely. and was that generally in reality the trajectory of of how it panned out that you were able to do the both and you kind of smoothly sailed through a medical degree <laughs> as well as um being a professional luge athlete and going to olympics or you know were there were there speed bumps along the way and did you maybe come across some challenges that you didn't foresee with being a dual athlete dual dual career athlete you know what were the sort of main challenges to that because just listening to it makes me feel makes me feel tired to be honest and <laughs> you sound like you were a lot more diligent as a dual a- uh, career athlete than I was um, by the sounds of it and by the way you're describing yourself so fair play to you but yeah wh- what did you come across? Um, so there was it definitely wasn't smooth sailing uh, I wish it I wish it had been and I just everything had been easy um, I mean in itself setting up the federation was not something i anticipated when I started this sport um having to to do all of that while obviously being in my third third year of university I think it was at the time second year third year something like that so trying to balance that and also trying to sort all the federation stuff and keep my training going was quite a lot um and then COVID changed everything really because we'd we'd had this plan from about the beginning of second year that I was going to go through to finish my fourth year take two years off, do an online distance learning masters while being a full-time athlete living in Norway and trying for the Beijing Olympics. That was the plan. And then I'd go back and do final year. And then COVID hit and that plan sort of went out the window because we didn't know if the Beijing games were going to go ahead or if they'd get delayed a year and I'd end up doing the Olympics in my final year of med school, which is what we wanted to avoid. We didn't know if there was even going to be any racing that season and I was going to take a year out and actually not really achieve anything because I wasn't racing. Um, and we knew at that point that the world needed doctors and, and I am committed to both careers and I just made the decision that actually um, I was going to go back to med school, I was going to cancel those two years out and I was going to graduate as a doctor because that's what I needed to be at that time. Um, and that definitely wasn't an outcome I'd ever anticipated, which, I mean, now it sounds weird because I'd be going back into my final year of medical school in, mm. in a couple of months time. So it's weird thinking that that was the plan. Um, but no, my, it didn't go, <laughs> my life did not go as we'd anticipated. Sometimes I find that works. And just quickly on that, like, sorry, 
No, no, go for it, go for it. Um, I was just really interested to see whether, because some people are sort of, they've got that sort of internal push themselves. And, and obviously it's a very big ask and a, a massive commitment to be juggling med school with, with your sport and, and traveling and training and competing. So, you know, were you, did you find that you are kind of naturally able to, to do that yourself and have that sort of, I guess, discipline as well as motivation mm -hmm. to, to go through with that? Or did you, did you need a bit of push from the outside, you know? No, I think, I think my career has always been incredibly self-motivated. My parents didn't know what luge really was until I kind of got into it. Um, and I don't think it was really till I got on the plane to China that they were like, oh my God, this is serious now. Um, she's actually doing this. Not just a phase. Yeah, exactly. And, and none of my family are medical. None of them have been to medical school. Like, so, so again, it was just, that was my decision. And that's something I wanted to do. And no one ever pushed me towards any of these career things. They were just something I wanted to do for myself. Um, and I think in terms of if I'd given up, my family wouldn't have been, they might have, they wouldn't have been like outwardly disappointed. They'd have just been like, okay, that's the decision you've made. So it really was always, if I want to do this, I have to want to do this. Otherwise it's not going to happen. Yeah, 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 it is to to to, <laughs> to stay motivated on the best of days as well. Um, Actually, the incredible. best of days is easy. It's the worst of days that it's hard. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. So we obviously we spoke a little bit about medical school. We spoke about being mm -hmm. full time athlete. Now, obviously, we're fast forwarding. You've graduated, um, and you're still a full time athlete. What's that transition period been like? Working from not necessarily your own schedule, but now you're being told you have to work night shift, you have to work day shifts, you have to work, you know, probably 12, 15, 16 hour mm. days. How have you found that adjustment period in terms of, you know, training and everything else? I actually, I, I was quite surprised I didn't find it too difficult. And I think part of that was because particularly as soon as I graduated and became a doctor, I wasn't doing any revision. I wasn't getting ready for exams at that time. So it meant unlike university, once I finished for the day, my work stayed at work. And then I had this free time. Whereas when I finished university, I still had to go home. I had to study. I had to prep for exams. And it was that balance of what I was doing outside the hospital as well. Whereas now, what now that I'm a graduate, I can just go home and the only thing then is lose. That's the only commitment yeah. I now have. So actually, I think it's been almost easier yeah. now being a doctor and lose athlete than it was as a medical student because I leave medicine at the hospital. Yeah, I suppose the structure is slightly different. I never really thought about the fact that, you know, when you're at work, you you work and then when you come home it's I suppose it's different for everybody right yeah so here's a hypothetical question before I ask you the next one which is not on the brief that we've okay. written down which is if you were to choose one or the other on throwing a curveball in oh here. no if you were to choose one or the other medicine yeah. or luge which one would you choose and why and is this if I had to you already today? said the answer to this did she when well, so this is the thing. This my answer I gave was when I was in second year. <laughs> if you're asking me today, and I yeah, had to yeah. choose, I could, because I now I would choose medicine. Mm. Now I would be able to make that mm. choice because my aim 
is now slightly different to what it was when I was in second year. When I was in second year of medical school, my aim was to graduate in medicine, but my aim in luge was the games. Um, and that had been my aim for so long. My aim now is more the federation than it is the games. I've, I've made history, I've become the first Irish athlete to go to the games. And yes, I, I, I'm so excited about the prospect of another games or two and improving my results and improving my rankings. But ultimately, my big aim now is, is to build that legacy and that federation. And I don't necessarily have to be sliding to do that. But luge is the career I'm going to have until I'm 65, 70 or later. So if I had to choose now, I would choose luge. I mean, I would choose medicine over luge. All right. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Answer. There we go. It's done. The careful. Right. Well, um, you kind of keep alluding to the games. Hmm. So t- tell us about the games. You, you know, you were, yeah, as you said, you made history as the first Irish athlete in Luge to compete in an Olympic Games. This was, you know, your first Olympic Games, obviously, and it was a massive goal of yours and for sure a massive experience mm. for yourself. And I've heard plenty from Connor. Yeah, we all have. <laughs> about, <laughs> about going to the Olympics. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about, about your experiences and, and how you found it. And, you know, was it, was it, d- did it live up to the hype? It did. It was amazing. But I think particularly for anyone who wants to go to a Games and is thinking about the Games or worrying about going to a Games, the ultimate thing to remember is it's just another competition. Um, and it's got the whole thing around it and it's all the excitement it's everything's amazing but ultimately it's the same you with the same equipment on the same track and it's another race and that was the big thing for me going into the games was remembering that Um, because it's so easy to get caught up in that hype of it's the olympics oh my god everyone's watching this is all happening but ultimately you're the same athlete you were the day before um so it was the whole thing was amazing the the opening ceremony like i cried um and I remember Tess just hugging me she's the uh, ski athlete that I was in a room with in the opening ceremony when I was just absolutely bawling um it was the whole thing it really was a dream come true but also it was you you look at the Olympics and you think oh my god it's the Olympics but the actual reality of the Olympics is a very different thing to to the dream of the Olympics because you do have to race and there was struggles when we were there, like around not having facilities to prepare equipment. And, and that was a stress that I'm sure Connor will remember and, uh, and having to perform and, and you're not just on a holiday and it is this enormous high, but you still have to be there and, and get those results. Um, so it was the reality of the games really was slightly different to, to that childhood dream of what the games was, but that doesn't mean it was any less special or less exciting or less of what I dreamed of. I don't know if that was the answer you wanted, but that's, yeah. Yeah, I liked the fact that you that you didn't just go, oh, it was, because obviously, you know, for, for, for everyone that that is in an individual sport or even a team sport and they have the opportunity to go to the Olympics, the goal is, that the big dream is to get there, right? Mm. And I, I like the fact that you that you kind of went, yeah, but I was also there to do work as well as enjoy it. You know, you're, well, you're that's there something we when we were at the games as yeah. well, because we we'd been aiming for it for so long, and it, it was that such huge high when we were in Innsbruck, and we yeah. were just on cloud nine. We had a pre 
pre-games camp in Innsbruck and I slid really, really well. My sled was running beautifully. We had a great time on the ice, no pressure. It was just cloud nine in Innsbruck. And then we got to the games and it was like, right now, this is where the hard work starts because we're not on holiday. We are here to work. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know there's going to be other athletes that listen to this, people potentially aiming for the games. I know you, Shuan, yourself would, uh, are hoping for 2024 potentially. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it's all sunshine and blue skies when it is you do have to work it is it is a competition and it's a dream come true but it's still it is a competition at the end of the day and you have to treat it as that yeah absolutely so one thing that I also wanted to bring up as well sorry if I interrupted you Yushuan um was I'm used to it <laughs> yeah, he is he is to be fair he is <laughs> um we can have an argument later Yushuan <laughs> So the, question, so the question that I wanted to bring up as well was, which a lot of people might not know, that all through this period of time, mm. really up until you got to the games, a lot of this was out of your own pocket, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. All right, so uh, Luge is not funded in Ireland. Mm. And I earn 500 euros for each race I do, but we also have a junior team and the juniors are kids. They can't work. So yeah, pretty yeah. much every penny that the Federation brings in from the from my racing goes to the juniors. Because I'm an adult. I have a job. I can, I can afford to some degree to fund myself. Uh, yeah. So very little of the income to the Federation actually goes to me. Most of it does go to the juniors. So my sled, I paid out of pocket. Most of my flights... Um, most like my equipment like everything most of it is either out of my pocket or with some support from my family yeah and so what's it been like you you mentioned you know now that you've been to the games now the goal really is to kind of set up a legacy so that you're the first in a very long line of Irish luge athletes you've gone from but being an athlete as well as now to be sort of a teacher and a mentor. So how has that role kind of developed and, you know, what sort of things are you looking for in the future to build the Irish Luge Federation into? Yeah. So I think it's, it's actually been quite a natural progression. Um, obviously there's, so I'm part of a small nations team and we do have a couple of coaches, but we're not a big team. We don't have a huge amount of support that big nations do. So we do help each other. And there might be a corner which I can do well and, and say the Bulgarian athlete is struggling on. So we'll work like I'll tell her what I'm doing and she'll tell me what she's doing. And we do work together on the circuit with the other small nations because it's we're we're there as as friends and we're trying to help each other to, to get through it. So from going from that where I'm helping my fellow athletes to then sort of helping my juniors it felt like quite a natural progression actually and and ever since the federation started I haven't been a member of the board because as an athlete I would I wasn't allowed to be but I can be the uh, the director of the development program and that was the role that I took on from the day this federation started um, and it's actually something I've I'm really excited about like we started the federation three years ago two and a half years ago and we now have a summer a summer luge camp happening in Finland where there'll be myself and um, I think we have three juniors going out so to go from nothing to, to four potentially four athletes this winter is going to be really exciting um, there's obviously been challenges of, of transitioning from being an athlete to being a coach when I'm still an athlete um, because I don't have the ability to 
go with the juniors to the World Cup circuit and support them in the way that I necessarily would like to, uh, because I still am racing myself and I still need that income from my races to be able to financially support them and their races. Um, but it's definitely something that is is something I'm really enjoying and, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it, how I can progress it in the future and, and how I can build it once I'm off the ice, once I retire as well. And I bet the athletes... So I asked earlier about... Whether you'd um, do, <laughs> whether you'd choose between luge or, or, or medicine, and what I'm interested as well is, you know, if you put between, you know, if you're given a choice between competing and being an athlete, mm-hmm. and you know, basically doing what you've been doing, versus this other thing that you've you've created and you've really sort of cultivated and you're pushing for, yeah. which is developing long-term this vision this uh, of the federation and bringing on depth into the team and and mm-hmm. um you know essentially creating a culture for the sport in a country where that sport didn't exist previously which one i guess it's really I guess what i'm asking is which one would you would you pick or which one brings you more more joy and more satisfaction i think it's really difficult because i can sit here now and and say, yeah, I'd, I'd choose the juniors in the development program, but I know it only takes one good run on the ice and that's all I want to do for the rest of my life because it is such a magical thing to do, Luzhin. It's such a privilege and it is, I, I absolutely adore it with every fibre of my being. So to say I would give up Luzhin is, is such a challenge, particularly when I know I'm not at a point in my career where I'm ready to do that. Um, and also knowing that if I quit now, again, I, we wouldn't have the financial support for the juniors. But if in a hypothetical world, there was some other financial support available for the juniors and I had to make that choice, um, I would I would now be at a point where I would choose that development program because I I love the sport. I'm not just someone that loves doing it, but I, I have a passion for the sport and, and its continuation and it building it. And and I, I think it's such a privilege to be part of that process of building the sport and introducing this new federation. I want to see this legacy in, in Ireland. And I think you're almost in a very advantageous position because you yourself have lived through that. Like you're not just coming into the sport and going, yeah, the juniors need this. You know, you were, you were an athlete that had, well, essentially none of this. So now you're making sure that, you know, the legacy that you create, they, the athletes don't have to go through necessarily the same barriers or the same things that you had to go through, which I guess is, is the whole idea right is yeah. is to have this network or support of you and the board and so on and so forth and, and, and so also just the connections that's yeah. so important to me because i know so many people who have such big arguments with their federation around all sorts of things and and not feeling like they're supported and people leaving because they don't feel like they're supported or wanted as an athlete and that is a position that i never want any of my athletes to be in i want this to be a federation that is run for the athletes by someone who's been through that and had to fight for literally everything. Um, I want them to feel like they don't have to have that fight because I know how hard it is. Yeah. And it's someone to look up to as well, right? You, although you would have had athletes that you looked up to, there was no one in your position Mm. because, you know, hardly anyone has done that before. If anyone, I can't even think of anyone at the top of my head. Um, so one question as well that I wanted to ask, which I guess is related to the games, is 
I mentioned in a couple of podcasts ago, um, as I have previously, I know you, Sean, I mentioned it a lot, all right? I was excited. And yeah, mate, I've not said anything. <laughs> no, we've never it's just his face. China. It's just his face. I just know. <laughs> um, so I mentioned <clears throat> that before I kind of went out there with you, um, you know, you kind of go through this period as an athlete or as a coach or, or whatever, where you kind of don't feel that you are adequate enough to get to that point. Mm. Did you ever feel like, whether you were at the games or even before, did you ever feel like maybe you didn't belong there or you had like a sort of a feeling of imposter syndrome or, mm. or were you just like, you know what, I know that I can do this a hundred percent. Oh no, very much. I, I, imposter syndrome is something I have hugely struggled with without throughout my career, particularly once I actually moved to the Irish team <clears throat> because I was seeing these these athletes from these big nations and they had so much and they they were putting so much time into their sliding, but I couldn't do that because I had to put time into other things. I had to put time into running the federation and, and sorting all these other things, which were struggles they didn't have, but it made me feel like maybe I should, maybe I haven't given enough to the sport, like the actual performance of it. Um, and it, I mean, it's really tricky when you come from a country that doesn't really do the sport. And I mean, people said to me once when I was a junior in Segolda, I went from Lady Star and someone said to me, British juniors don't go from Lady Star in Segolda. Because historically they hadn't, because it's, it's a really tricky track. And historically women from GB at junior level hadn't done that. Uh, and people even sort of this season just gone will say Ireland have a loose team, really? So like when people are almost questioning why you're being there, you sometimes sort of start to question, do I, do I deserve to be here? Um, and it almost took me really going to the games to think, yeah, I, I do deserve to be here. Like I, I am my spot, I am my place. And, and yes, if I was in the German team, I wouldn't even make the team. But then if I was in the German team, I would be better because I would have thousands of pounds of funding. I'd have a physio, I'd have a technician, I'd have all these things but I'm doing it without any of that. So if you take one of those girls and give them what I have, they wouldn't be as good as they are now. Uh, and so it's kind of taken me a long time to sort of sort of see it that way. Cause when I was a junior, it just very much felt like I, I didn't deserve to be there. Yeah, I, I love that. I don't you know, I just didn't feel like I deserved to be there. No, good. I just <laughs> love, I just, I don't know. I just love the, the kind of, idea that regardless of like whatever point you are in your life there's mm. going to come a point where you are challenged to the point where you think oh maybe I'm not good enough but I love that not not that you didn't feel that you were good enough but you overcame that and you thought well actually no one else can do this I've put myself in this position and I've worked hard and I think to have that self-belief in yourself is not something that is common and if it is common a lot of people they don't see it as like, oh, wow, she's so self-empowered. Mm. You know, they're like, oh, wow, that's a bit egotistical. But actually, it's not at all. Mm. And I think, I don't know, I, I've had conversations in the last couple of weeks where I've tried to say to people, you know, sometimes it's worth looking at the things that you've done and actually applauding in your performance mm. or whatever. But they're like, oh, no, but that's, you know, I don't know if that's, why is it not? Celebrate it took me a very success. long time to be proud of myself. Mm. It took me so many years to be able to say I'm proud of myself because yeah. I felt like I was being selfish or egotistical or 
just like that that wasn't an okay thing to say but then I can now look back and everything I've done and everything I've achieved and honestly say I, I genuinely am proud of myself and I'm not ashamed of saying that yeah proud but never satisfied oh god no <laughs> never too many things to do exactly the mountain doesn't have a top sir he only has two <laughs> rabbits she needs more I need more <laughs> well one thing I did want to add as well before I this podcast episode finishes and yeah. I had not been able to to express this is that I just love the verb sliding as oh, yeah. the word that is used to like the verb of doing a sport because you know I must admit I've never I've never had yeah but actually before I met you and before Connor wouldn't stop talking about you as well <laughs> um I <laughs> sorry mate I had to be done I you know I was quite ignorant about winter sports and winter olympics and that side of of sport you know it's not something that I'd really come across before in my life and you know that's partly to do with the fact that I'm from Hong Kong we don't have winters we don't have winter sports but equally it's been such a fascinating time learning about luge amongst other winter sports during the winter olympics and you know listening to your story and how you've gone from you know, being a junior athlete for GB to actually doing all this amazing stuff um, in, I want to say, you know, spearheading and pioneering an entirely new federation for a different country and still being good enough to be an athlete for that nation and good enough to go to the Olympics. So yeah, no, just uh, solid. Thank you. Um, I don't think people know generally, lots of people don't know about winter sports, which I think is such a shame because I think it's such a rich culture within winter sports. Mm. Um, and, and Connor, having gone to the games, I hope he saw some of that. that it's, it's such, and it's sure so, so much camaraderie sure within did. winter sports as well. I think far more than summer sports, um, which I just adore. Yeah. Right. So now we've spoken about the games. Now yeah, that was back in Feb. All that time ago. All that time ago. It's gone quick. We're already seven months into the year and it feels like I've not done a lot. But having said that... Other than go to Beijing. Well, I mean after <laughs> Beijing. Oh, yeah, I mean after that. I mean, yeah. But um, how did you find the period after the games were over in terms of, mm. I guess, sort of getting back to reality and back to sort of you know, the everyday grind rather than being on the high of, oh my God, we're one month away from the games. Now you're four years away from the games. Um, you know, what does that, what did that look like to you? What thoughts went into your head? How did you kind of deal with that? So I've, I've thought a lot about this specific question more than any of the other questions. Because I think if you'd asked me this question two months ago, I would have said, oh, I came back, I got back to my job. I felt a bit down for a couple of days, but I kept myself busy and then I was kind of back at it. That's probably the response I'd have given two months ago. The problem is that that response is actually not true. <laughs> that response is for my reality now, completely not true. 
Um, so I think, I think in sport, there's so much more recognition now of how it affects your mental health. And I think it's easy for someone outside of sport to look at it and go, okay, so you missed your mother's 50th birthday, had to see all those photos while you were in Lillehammer. You've missed three Christmases, seven New Year's. I can see how that affects your mental health. It's easy from someone on the outside to say, right, you had a bad performance. You felt disappointed. You felt like you let people down. It's easy to see how that affects your mental health. But it's very difficult, I think, from someone from the outside to look at someone who's achieved everything they wanted and understand why they feel incredibly low. But it's so common amongst athletes. And it's that thing of when people climb Mount Everest, a lot more people die on the way down than die on the way up. Because you have that adrenaline, you have that goal and you have that target and then you reach it. And then it's just kind of like, what now? And you've lost that adrenaline, you've lost that drive and, and it, it's a really tough thing. So I came back from <clears throat> what was the toughest season of my life. Olympic qualification was incredibly tough. And because every thousandth of a second count, my preseason went horribly. We considered not even trying for the games at one point. And there's highs and lows every single week of this race went amazing. I'm one step closer. This went terribly. I'm one step further away. And then in Sigolda, we had the last race of the qualifying period and I the ranking came out and I was one place too low, basically. And Connor will remember this. And the only way that I've ever heard someone describe not qualifying for the games that I think actually makes sense is grief because you've lost this thing that you've worked so hard for. And it just feels like a profound loss. It's, it's horrible. And so I had that for two days and it was some of the toughest two days of my life. And then I qualified based on um, an uh, kind of not an error, but a, a wording in the translation of the German qualification system to English, um, which meant I actually did qualify. And so we then just, as I said, had this cloud nine of um, of the camp and, and the games. And obviously there were some challenges at the games, but it was everything was so heightened, all these emotions. And then I came back and I was back at work the next day and I was going to Tesco's and I was booking dentist appointments. And it was from this enormous roller coaster of emotions to just this sort of flat line. And I, we'd been prepared for this. We'd been told about like post-game blues and all that sort of stuff. But I found it very difficult because I was like, I've got everything I wanted. I'm a doctor, I'm an Olympian. I have my flat, I have my rabbits. I have everything I want. Why do I feel low? And so I kind of didn't really acknowledge it or do anything about it. I just kept myself busy. I went to work, I did extra shifts. I did things with my friends. I did my other hobbies. I didn't acknowledge it. I literally just pushed it under the surface. was like, I have everything I want, I'm fine. And it wasn't till a couple of weeks ago when some other things happened in my personal life and with my family that I kind of realized I'm not okay. Like I'm not doing well. And I got some professional help and we talked through the other things, these personal things that happened recently, but also we kind of realized that I didn't have any emotional or, or like psychological bandwidth to tolerate these other events because I was still having that lack of processing from those experiences of, of the winter and the games that I hadn't sat with those emotions. I hadn't processed these events and I'd just gone, I'm fine. And, and I think I'm willing to put my hands up and say that I didn't deal with um, the post games period in the way that I would have liked to or, or should have. And, and there's definitely a learning for me going into the next games. I'm not gonna go straight back to work. I'm gonna allow myself some time to process that experience and to sit with those emotions. I hope that everyone okay. listening just heard the raw honesty from someone who has been at the games to now, you know, really sat down and realized that 
and admit as well because it's so brave to to admit actually you know what i'm not all right you know because it's easier to just push to the side and go ah yeah i'm good it's all right just got got a shift in a couple of hours so whatever i'll just eat and get to it so thank you so much for sharing that first of all like i know that it's never easy to talk about those things and especially with obviously people who are listening so i fully appreciate you sharing that with us um and yeah i hope that i hope that you know the help that you get helps and you're a brave fucking <laughs> awesome woman for doing that <laughs> i don't know what else to say but i'm just amazed um so let's let's turn it to a slightly lighter note now to finish off with we spoke about basically the we're past what we've just finished on um what does the future hold now i guess so now the next sort of big target really is milan cortina in four mm-hmm. years but there's a lot of things we need to do before we get me there um yeah. so we've got a new sled coming this season which i'm so excited about because it's going to completely change everything um, we're also going into a partnership. I can't yet announce who it's with, um, but we're going into a partnership with a bigger nation, which will allow me to use their their coaches and um, their technicians. And, and that will really, again, help my career hugely. So for this season is going to be really about coming to, um, to the season and learning that new sled and becoming part of this other uh, federation that I'm partnering with and, and letting myself progress through that. And I'm incredibly excited about that. The world championships this year coming are in Oberhof, which is one of my favorite tracks. It was actually the second track I ever slid as a junior and I, I really adore it. It's got such a nice rhythm to it, that track. So I'm very excited for that. Um, and then it's really just going to be building over the next four years before, well, Olympic qualification. We have two years before that starts and then and then looking at Milan Cortina and uh, I would like a top 25 finish in Milan Cortina. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other big aim is going to be to try to get potentially one of our juniors to the Youth Olympics. Um, Brilliant. We have, uh, some That'd be incredible. So not a lot then. No, it's a really quiet few years and I've obviously got to actually do some medicine in the meantime. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Yushra. Well, I was going to say, I thought you were high achieving. I'm not that impressed by that. um... (laughs) No, I'm actually uh, very happy with low standards. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, lovely. No, but I love, and I, you know, every time we have a guest done and we go like, you know, what's next? I just, uh, the way that you just put it all out, like you, you know what you want. Elsa Desmond knows what she wants. And, she does. You know, I don't... I want luge and medicine. I have no idea what I want for dinner. That's, that, <laughs> that's okay. I don't either. I do, but, but I'm not a doctor. The only thing I do know in life is what I want for dinner and breakfast yeah. and lunch. But that's the difference between the two of us. And, you know, you obviously do it very well. And I never thought that I would be waving the Irish flag whilst watching a sport. So thank you very much. That's where I'll be from now on. Thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate all the support that I get. And we appreciate bringing you onto the podcast. Guys, I really hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much, Elsa, for giving up your time in such a busy schedule. Um, yeah, if you guys liked it, please comment, share, subscribe, all that jazz on Spotify. Um, and I always forget this. In Luge, please follow exactly. my Instagram, and uh, which is Elsa's underscore no underscore princess, or the Island Luge Instagram, which is just Luge Island, or go to www.lugeisland.com. Perfect. Unprompted. Look at that. 
It's almost like we I've rehearsed been doing it. This too long. I've done so <laughs> many podcasts this year. You she, have no idea. She's had so much media training that she's just plug, plug, plug. But yeah, guys, thank you so much. Elsa, thank you so much. Yushuan, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Legend. We'll catch thank you on the you next episode of Into the Unknown. So, Yushuan, do you want to plug where people can find you? Yeah, so on Instagram, I am at yushuan.su.eventing. On Facebook, I am yushuan.su.eventing. And my website is suyushuaneventing.com. What about you, Connor? Mine is at Connor Lift Stuff on Instagram and at Stoic Strength Systems on Instagram. And we was also just set up a Patreon under the same name, Stoic Strength Systems. So give those a follow. I will put the links all down in the description if I figure out how to do it. Thank you for listening to this episode. Make sure you like, share and subscribe to the podcast on wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you next time.